Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel lesson today picks up right where we left off last week. You'll recall that Simon had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has called Simon Peter, first person ever to take that name, to be given that name. And he's explained also to Simon Peter that flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but his Father who is in heaven. And then finally, Jesus promised that the church would be built on the teaching of the apostles and on that very confession that Jesus is the Christ. That brings us then to our gospel lesson today in which uh, Jesus um, begins to teach his disciples about what he will suffer, where he is headed. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Although the apostles, and it's not just Peter, Peter made the confession, but the other apostle, Peter's like the spokesman for the apostles. So the other apostles made that same confession after Peter did. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. So they, they confess that Jesus is the Christ, but they didn't really understand fully what does that mean? What does it mean to be the Christ? So when Jesus says that he's going to go and suffer, they didn't understand that. And he's beginning to show them that God's ways are not man's ways. It's not going to play out like they are thinking it's going to. It's the will of the Father to save all, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And in order to do that, it's necessary that atonement be made for sin. And that is what Jesus is going to do. And he's beginning to explain this to them, that it's necessary, that, his, that the atonement that he will make for their sins and for the sins of the world requires this, that he goes to Jerusalem, that he suffers at the hands of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees, and that ultimately he's crucified. I guess they didn't hear the part about then be raised on the third day. They didn't let, like really focus on that. But later they realized, oh yeah, he said he would be raised on the third day. Anyway, I think we can safely say that Peter meant well when he uh, said, no, no, Jesus, that, that can't happen. You can't do it that way. You can't suffer. It's as though Peter were saying, no, no, Jesus, you shouldn't suffer. Uh, God will have mercy on you as the Christ, the Messiah. You're going to usher in God's reign and kingdom, starting in Jerusalem and then going to the ends of the earth. But in spite of whatever Peter's intentions were, even if he was, you know, thinking about this in an understandable way, just, just, you know, his concern for Jesus, Jesus' rejoinder is just so shocking and so abrupt, you know, to say, get behind me, Satan. This, these are the same words that he used when Satan tempted him, 
You know, when, when Satan tempted Jesus, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by Satan, it's the same words that he used there. Get behind me, Satan. He uses those talking to Peter. He says, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, following this shocking rebuke, Jesus offered the apostles a foretaste of what is to come, of what to expect for him and for his disciples. This is the fate that Jesus will experience. This is also the fate that these disciples, for the most part, will experience. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to confess a great many things, a great many truths. For example, the world didn't just explode into existence. The universe didn't didn't just happen that way. God created the heavens and the earth. We confess that. Uh, Why do bad things happen? Well, mankind fell into sin because a historical person named Adam ate of the tree of which it was forbidden. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense with all the evolutionary talk and everything else. That doesn't fit with our modern scientific sensibilities. Well, sorry. That's what the Bible teaches. God has given us divine law. Oh, he has? You mean there's like an actual right and wrong? Yeah. Yeah, yes. He's given us his divine law. And, and, well, when you look around, not everyone in our culture seems to be on board with that. They don't like the idea that, that uh, their truth can't be just their own truth. You know, that like, well, isn't truth subjective? I mean, isn't, it, isn't, isn't morality relative? Uh, you know, and, and God says, no, no, it's wrong to lie. It's a sin. Oh, but I was lying for the sake of, you know, sparing someone's feelings, sparing someone's life. I and mean, we use that as an example. Is it wrong to lie and say, no, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, uh, I'm not hiding someone in the shelter of my house who's being persecuted? Is that wrong to lie? Because you have a good goal in mind. The answer is yes, it's a sin to lie. It's the sin you must commit. It is the sin you must commit. Because the greater sin would be to so unlove your neighbor that you turned him over to persecution. So it's a sin you must commit. But nevertheless, it's still a sin. So God has given us a divine law. And in, uh, in our world, that's not always really appreciated. But when, when, when we uh, are standing on God's truth, we might just suffer persecution. I mean, these, uh, this law that God has given was given that we might see ourselves correctly. You know, think about the prime, what's the primary purpose of the law? The mirror. So we can see the sin in ourselves. And why? So we can just scourge ourselves and whip ourselves and and uh, wallow in self-pity because we're such bad people? No, of course not. It's so that we can see our need for a savior. 
Because the message that Jesus died for your sins is meaningless if there is no sin. If you don't recognize, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, then, then, then that's meaningless. And yet we live in a world where, and it's, it's not just now, I mean, it's always been this way, but we live in a world where if we hold to these truths that we confess as Christians, Jesus is saying, if you stand on these truths, you will be persecuted, just as he was. These truths are not popular. It's, it's not, uh, not always well-received. Uh, there are scoffers. There are unbelievers. There are those who are captive to the world and those that are captive to Satan. And to such people, the truth of God's word is a challenge to their way of life. To such people, disciples of Christ are to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be, to be persecuted, to be abused, to be taken of advantage of, and more. So how is a disciple to handle such a situation? Should we work hard to take over the levers of power in our society? Perhaps we support the right candidates or the right lobbying groups that will sort of Christianize our civil law so that, you know, so that everything will be on the up and up in our society. Maybe, maybe we could force our government-run schools to allow prayer or to actually encourage some sort of uh, uh, rec- recognition that that there is a God who has created everything, that all knowledge comes from him. Maybe that would solve everything. Don't misunderstand me, by the way. We are citizens of this country, and we should do all that we can. I'm not against the right candidates and lobbying groups that push for laws that protect our neighbors. You know, for example, it's not loving to our neighbors to, to have this uh, policy of abortion that we have in this country. So we should push to end that. It's not loving to our neighbors to, you know, for the schools to tell them, oh, it's okay, you think you're a boy? Okay, well, you're a boy or a girl or whatever. That's not loving because that's not true. It defies God's law. So it's not loving to do that. We have to stand for the truth. So I'm all for pressing and and operating as citizens to bring about positive changes in our society, okay, that bring our society in line with God's law. The point is that's the, that, uh, that all of those efforts, when you think about it, what are all of those efforts focused on? They're focused on the ways of men. And that's not what Jesus is getting at in this, in this uh, passage when he talks to the disciples, to the apostles, and he tells them what to expect. That's not what he's getting at. He starts out saying, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. This starts with self-denial. Now, this leads to 
teasing, harassment, persecution, torture, and sometimes even death. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Now, is this bad news? It sounds like pretty bad news. But no, it's, it's not. Because Jesus gives us this promise. Whoever would lose his life, whoever, sorry, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Not everyone is called to martyrdom. But those who are do not lose their life. They gain it. The martyrs didn't lose their life. They gained it. And they gained a great many believers and disciples as a result of it. Have you heard it said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? All this means that as disciples, you are free to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. That means you're free to be abused for the name of Christ. Doesn't mean that we're doormats. No. The key is that this is for the name of Christ. You can speak the truth of God's word, God's law. You can speak that truth even if it means that your neighbors call you a bigot for doing so. You can speak the truth of God's law even if it creates a rift in your family. You can speak the truth of God's law even if it costs you your job or your house or your life. You won't lose your life. That's what Jesus is saying. In Christ, you are free to suffer just as he did. And that is not the end of the story. God will set all things right. But he'll do it in his time and according to his ways. As disciples, we're called to trust him. Think about this uh, passage from Jeremiah where Jeremiah calls out, Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. I mean, he was being persecuted. He says, God, take vengeance on them, please. God responded, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. See, God fights for us. Like I said, it doesn't mean we're doormats. Well, what it means is that we're free to suffer without worrying that that somehow God's plan is not being worked through, that, that God has lost control because I'm suffering. No, that, that's okay. Deny yourself. That's what Jesus said. Deny yourself. Beloved, there's no place, there's no time, there's no situation in which God is not with you. He is always and constantly with you. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Through the word and the sacrament, he has worked faith in you to believe and to hold on to this promise of everlasting life. He will not abandon you. Therefore, you have nothing to fear. I want to end with Dr. Luther's fourth stanza of his iconic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to foes who fear it. For God himself fights by our side with weapons of the Spirit. Were they to take our house, goods, 
honor, child, or spouse. Though life be wrenched away, they cannot win the day. The kingdom's ours forever. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.